0: Welcome to the 366th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with writer Sarah McCraw Crow, author of the novel, The Wrong Kind of Woman. And stay tuned after the interview for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of The Wrong Kind of Woman. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro.fm. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., Check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Sarah McCraw Crow, author of the debut novel, The Wrong Kind of Woman. Sarah, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your new novel, The Wrong Kind of Woman yet, how would you describe the novel?
1: So... I would say that my novel is about three people who are all grappling with the death of the same person. But at the heart of my novel is my character Virginia, who is a new widow, new widow at 39, so she's a very young widow, and it's her husband Oliver who has died very suddenly. And he was a history professor at a small all-male kind of animal house like college called Clarendon College. And all of this is happening in 1970. So in the background, we have the Vietnam War, which has been dragging on, and all those issues related to it, like the student strikes and protests and more radical elements like the weather underground are getting started. And at the same time, the women's movement, the second phase of the women's movement is starting to heat up. So my character, Virginia, is pretty undone by her husband's death, and she starts to become friends with some women that she probably would not have become friends with otherwise, and these are the only four women faculty at Clarendon College, and with these new friends, she helps to bring the women's movement to their small town and to the college. So that's sort of my long-winded answer and a part of what the novel is about.
0: So do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write The Wrong Kind of Woman?
1: You know, it's kind of funny because I think the original idea was not an idea, but just a couple of characters. And when I started writing about Virginia, she was actually a version of a character that I had written about a long time ago in the first short story I ever published. And then pretty soon I was writing about Oliver and I had all these pages from his perspective. And so I was just writing away and different characters would kept popping up. And um, then I realized, I'm not sure when I realized this, but two of my sort of longtime interests kind of got folded in there. And one is my fascination with the women of my mom's generation, like women who are in their 80s and even 90s today, and how they arranged their lives, how they navigated the choices that were Available to them and not available to them, and um, you know, I wondered what their lives were like. And then my other longtime interest is in my own alma mater, Dartmouth College, and what it would have been like in the years before co-education. What it would have been like for the people who were either didn't feel like they belonged there or were on the outside for one reason or another. Um, If you were a woman and you couldn't go there, or if you were one of the first female exchange students there. So it was kind of like a a funny mix of things that sort of popped up little by little.
0: Well, as you said, the book is set in 1970. What kind of research did you do to capture the time and place in your novel?
1: So um, it's kind of, I, you know, when I started working on this and as I got deeper into it, I thought I knew plenty about the late 60s and early 70s, but it turned out I didn't know that much. And I ended up reading memoirs of like uh, women who were activists at the time or um, people who got more radical. That's not really what my book is about per se, but it was helpful to sort of get the context and some more general histories and then some more niche histories. Like there's a whole book about the struggle for co-education in the more elite, like the Ivy league colleges and how, um, how much pushback there was against the the move towards co-education. And then I looked at things like what were the bestsellers at the time and what were the movies and listened to a lot of music and music was actually a way to sort of um, that was less in the realm of research and more in the realm of sort of trying to set the mood for myself to think about the texture of the time. So, sort of a mixture. And I would say I sort of researched as I went along, as things would pop up, if I didn't know something or wondered about something, I would just dig in and do a little bit of research.
0: Well, given the themes of your novel, I guess it's not surprising. Do you see continued echoes in terms of what's going on right now, uh, culturally with protests against police brutality, as well as the Me Too movement, etc.?
1: I really do. And I, you know, I didn't set out to write something that was sort of echoing or particularly relevant for right now. It's just, I was interested in that time, but it is a little uncanny how there is that similarity with all the protests. And like you said, the police, you know, police brutality and black lives matter. And then more recently when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and More articles came out about all her work on gender equity um, and the reminder of how it really hasn't been that long for women to have things like access to, you know, get their own mortgage or to get a credit card in their own name, to get birth control, all of those kinds of things. and. Yeah, I mean, we don't have the one difference. We do have the political division that there was 50 years ago, but the political division is very different now. Back then it was more young versus old, roughly, and now it's red versus blue and arguably much deeper than it was then. So, yeah, I think you can look at and see a lot of the parallels of those two times, even though they are 50 years apart.
0: Sure. So do you remember the first fiction that you ever wrote?
1: Well, you know, I noodled around with fiction for a long time, starting when I was pretty young, like in my twenties, but I just didn't have the confidence to pursue it seriously until, um, gosh, maybe thirteen years ago, I would say. So the first short story that I ever like completed—I mean, I'd written short stories. I had tried to write novels before, but the first one that I ever completed and got published and all of that was probably about 13 years ago and that was around the time that I started taking writing classes and going to conferences and joining writing groups and that kind of thing.
0: And what eventually led you to writing and getting the wrong kind of woman published?
1: Well, um so I was, you know, I was plugging away at my fiction writing and sort of doing that around the edges I guess and taking classes and so forth and I Um, this is going to sound like a roundabout answer, but I was actually working on something else for about eight years. And it was a historical novel about the sister of the artist, John Singer Sargent. So I was researching and writing and writing and writing. And then I ended up with this big novel that spanned like 50 years. And that novel actually got me an agent but it didn't sell. But, but while all that time when my agent was looking at it and when I was before that, when I was querying and then after that, when it was out on submission, I started this other project and that was what became the wrong kind of woman. And I, it came pretty quickly. I wrote it in about maybe two and a half years, I think. And I think it was such a relief to just write something that was in a time period that I knew and places that I knew and, um, Yeah, it was just sort of like a way to get away from the other project. So then it turned into the novel that's old. I guess you never know.
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, it sounds like from what you said earlier that your writing process was rather organic. Is that the case? Or did you at some point do any type of outline or or plot? uh, Um, Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, that's okay.
1: Um, yeah, organic is exactly the word for it, because I was just writing pages in different characters' points of view and getting to know them and their backstory, and that is definitely one of my um downfalls, I guess is spending too much time in backstory, like thinking about what happened in their childhood and what were there like terrible things that happened when they were young and so. I think any outline I did came later when I looked at what I had and tried to start imposing order on it. And a lot of that actually was pairing, pairing things away. Uh, like the character Oliver, the dead husband, I had so many pages in his point of view. And at a certain point, I realized that it wasn't his story and he couldn't be narrating from the past. So he had to go. So... Any outline I was doing, outlining I was doing came, came much later, sort of backwards outlining, I guess.
0: Gotcha. So at that point were were you? did you know that he was dead and you were just writing those um, pages from his point of view before his death?
1: I didn't at first. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly when I did know that he was going to be, um, you know, he, he was going to die on page one, but, um, <laughs> I, I just, I was interested in these two characters, Virginia and Oliver, who both feel like failures and outsiders for different reasons. And were not able to talk about those feelings with each other, even though they were husband and wife. So I think I was also looking at the ups and downs of a marriage and, um, gosh, I really can't remember when he, when it was clear that he was, (laughs) he was dead. But I was still thinking that even though he was dead, he would be more part of, we would get more of his perspective. And as the novel is now, we don't get that. He's only filtered through what other people are remembering about him.
0: Right. Well, I know that you're currently in an MFA program. How has the MFA experience been for you?
1: Well, I actually finished the MFA last okay. summer, so that's all that's done, and um, it actually was a wonderful experience. It was something that I had over and over. I had decided not to do an MFA because I had gone to uh, grad school for journalism when I was younger, and I felt like I did that, and I can just take classes, and that's enough. And um, at some point, I finally decided I'm just going to do it. I'll see if I can get some funding and. I I did, and it was just, I wish I had done it sooner, but I also wonder if doing it later, after spending many years taking classes and writing and so forth.
2: You know how to book flights and hotels.
0: you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done
1: gave it gave me a different understanding and experience of it. and as you know there is a lot of when you're in workshop and you get critiqued and sometimes the critiques can be sort of harsh. Um, I was very used to that. But, I would also say low residency programs like Vermont College of Fine Arts are super supportive, and they have students at all different ages and um, really very accomplished writers and super accomplished teachers. so it was it was a really great experience and also very helpful. when i When I started there, I had a pretty rough draft of the novel, and getting it workshopped and working with my advisors really made a big difference.
0: And how did that work logistically in terms of low residency? Did you do things remotely and then go in um, one week a semester or how did that work?
1: Yes. It's sort of like that. And most of the low residency programs follow the same format and um, they all started with the same group of teachers, maybe 30 or 40 years ago. They came from Vermont college of fine arts and Warren Wilson college in North Carolina. And you, Basically, you go to campus for 10 days or two weeks, twice a year, and you have workshops, and it's kind of like an intense writing conference sort of situation, and go to craft talks and lectures. And then the rest of the time, you work with one advisor, and you send them work every three or four weeks, and they... uh, you know, send back their comments and you just keep going. So some of the time it's very social and workshoppy and community-ish. And some of the times it's very, you know, you're on your own. It's just you sending stuff to your advisor. It's, it's a pretty good model for what being a writer is like, because most of the time you're just, you're by yourself. Right. You're not, you're not on a campus or, you know, you can't give all your time to writing.
0: Right, and were you were you also uh, workshopping and reading other uh, your classmates' work?
1: Yes, right. So you don't do that during the semester, but when okay. you're when you have your there's no workshop during the semester, but during okay. the on campus two week parts, you do you you know some of the workshops are very very small, you know if they're a specialty workshop it might just be six people and sharing larger chunks of something, and some of them are more standard. 10 to 12 people and one or two workshop leaders and yes and that is it is such a help to critique other people's work and you know read it closely and look at what's working and um, I think that helps your own work as much as it helps the other person because it's like looking at someone else's kid like what's wrong with that child and their parenting you can you know it's so easy to see what what's going on with someone else's work
0: right. So what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels?
1: Oh gosh. Um let's see. So if you're if you haven't written at all and you just think you would like to write, I guess my first suggestion would be to give yourself permission and um metaphorically, lock your mama in the closet, as Jill McCorkle says, you know, which, is, which is to say, don't worry about what your family's going to think. Don't worry if it's good or bad. And just you know, sit down and write. And I think for a lot of people, writing longhand in a notebook is, can be sort of strangely freeing. And, and know that when you first start writing, and even when you've been writing for a long time, that your first draft is not going to be good it's going to be a shitty shitty first draft like anne lamott says and that's okay you know the revision will, will come later so the thing is to just make time in your life for writing and once you've been doing that for a while i would say it's really important to start getting some feedback from a writing class or a writing group or going to a conference or all of the above mm-hmm. and if you think oh well, i don't know how to get a writing group probably a the best way to do it is to take a writing class and, you know, think of how others are critiquing and reading your work and, you know, just ask them at the end of the class if they would like to, you know, keep going. And that's happened for me a few times with writing classes. And it can be really nice um, to just have a small group that you exchange exchange stuff with. And then I guess the last thing would be is, I mean, I don't know if this even needs to be said, but to read, read a lot, read every day and read, read the books, reread the books that you love, but also read outside your genre. And if you're writing fiction, read nonfiction and vice versa. I guess those are my main suggestions.
0: So along those lines, what books have you read recently that you enjoyed either fiction or nonfiction?
1: Okay. What have I read recently? Um, I have read a lot of debut novels recently. I really enjoyed, um, let's see, there was a novel by Jennifer Rosner called The Yellow Bird Sings. It was really beautiful. And a novel by Christina Clancy called The Second Home. Um, That's about, it's it's a family story about siblings that are, um, they have been estranged for many years and they're they're brought to back together in this sort of crisis situation. And what else have I been reading? I just started uh, Maggie O'Farrell's novel, Hamnet, which is, um, I don't know if you've read it, but it's the story of Shakespeare's son, basically, who dies from the plague at a young age. And so it's also the story of the marriage between uh, Shakespeare's Own Marriage, and I'm only about 50 pages in, but so far it's it's so beautiful.
0: I haven't read it, but I've heard about it a lot. Mm-hmm. It's on my to-be-read list. Yeah, it's pretty great. Great. So are you working on another novel now? So
1: right now I'm working on a couple of different things, um, or theoretically working on a couple of different things. One is um, set in the 20s, And um, in El Paso and Missouri, and I'm not sure if I'm going to keep going with that. And the other one is set in the early 80s. And I have a character who is obsessed with nuclear war, and she's driving her family crazy. And I'm eager to get back to that one, but it's really, it's just really at the beginning. And so I need to just go back and spend some time with it and see what might become of it.
0: Great. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your debut novel?
1: So I'm online. I have, uh, let's see, I wonder if it's better to mention my website. If you just Google my name, it's my website is com, And my Instagram is also, I think it's, what is my Instagram? Yeah. No, my Instagram is um, at Sarah McCraw Crow and Facebook is the same. And yeah, my website is Sarah McCraw com.
0: Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Sarah McCraw Crow, author of the debut novel, The Wrong Kind of Woman. The novel is on sale now. So go buy a copy. And Sarah, thanks for doing this interview.
1: Thank you so much, Jeff. I really appreciate it.
0: Great. Stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of The Wrong Kind of Woman by Sarah McCraw-Crow. Narrated by Andy Arndt, published by Harlequin Audio, and available wherever audiobooks are sold.
3: Oliver died the Sunday after Thanksgiving, the air heavy with snow that hadn't fallen yet. His last words to Virginia were, Tax, Jenny? Do we have any tax? That morning at breakfast, their daughter, Rebecca, had complained about her eggs, runny and gross, she said. Also, the whole neighborhood already had their Christmas lights up. And why didn't they ever have outside lights? Virginia tuned her out. At 13, Rebecca had reached the age of comparison, noticing where her classmates' families went on vacation, what kinds of cars they drove. But Oliver agreed about the lights and after eating his own breakfast and Rebecca's rejected eggs, he drove off to the hardware store to buy heavy-duty Christmas lights. Back at home, Oliver called Virginia out onto the front porch, where he and Rebecca had looped strings of colored lights around the handrails on either side of the steps. Virginia waved at their neighbor Gerda across the street. On her own front porch, Gerda knelt next to a pile of balsam branches, arranging them into two planters as Rebecca and Oliver described their lighting scheme. Rebecca's cheeks had gone ruddy in the New Hampshire cold, as Oliver's had. Rebecca had his red-gold hair, too. Up one side and down the other, Rebecca said, like they do at Molly's house. Tax, Jinny? Do we have any tax? Oliver interrupted. In no time, he'd lost patience with this project, judging by the familiar set of his jaw, the frown lines corrugating his forehead. A few minutes later, box of nails and hammer in hand, Virginia saw Oliver's booted feet splayed out on the walk, those old work boots he'd bought on their honeymoon in Germany a lifetime ago. Do you have to lie down like that to- she began, while Rebecca squeezed out from between the porch and the overgrown rhododendron. Dad? Rebecca's voice pitched upward. Daddy- Virginia slowly took in that Oliver was lying half on the lawn, half on the brick walk, one hand clutching the end of a light string. Had he fallen? It made no sense, him just lying there on the ground like that, and she hurtled down the porch steps. Oliver's eyes had rolled back so only the whites showed. But he'd just asked for tax, and she hadn't had time to ask if nails would work instead. She crouched, put her mouth to his, and tried to breathe for him, Something was happening, yes. Maybe now he would turn out to be just resting, and in a minute he'd sit up and laugh with disbelief. Next to her, Rebecca shook Oliver's shoulder, pounded on it. Dad, you fainted. Wake up. Go call the operator, Virginia said. Tell them we need an ambulance. Tell them it's an emergency. A heart attack, Becca. Run. Rebecca ran. Virginia put her ear to Oliver's chest, listening a flurry of movement. Gerda was suddenly at her side, kneeling, and Eileen from next door, then Rebecca, gasping or maybe sobbing. Virginia felt herself being pulled out of the way as the ambulance backed into the driveway and the two paramedics bent close. They, too, breathed for Oliver, pressed on his chest while counting, then lifted him gently onto the backboard and up into the ambulance. She didn't notice that she was holding Rebecca's hand on her one side and Eileen's hand on the other, and that Gerda had slung a protective arm around Rebecca. She barely noticed when Eileen bundled her and Rebecca into the car without a coat or purse. She didn't notice the snow that had started to fall, first snow of the season. Later, that absence of snow came back to her, when the image of Oliver lying on the bare ground, uncushioned even by snow, wouldn't leave her. Aneurysm. A ruptured aneurysm. A balloon that had burst, sending a wave of blood into Oliver's brain. A subarachnoid hemorrhage. She said all those new words about a thousand times, along with more familiar words. Bleed, and blood, and brain. Rips, and tears. One in a million. Sitting at the kitchen table, Rebecca next to her and the coiled phone cord stretched taut around both of them, Virginia called one disbelieving person after another, repeated all those words to her mother, her sister Marnie, Oliver's brother, Oliver's department chair, the people in her address book, the people in his. At President Weissman's house five days later, Virginia kept hold of Rebecca. Rebecca had stayed close, sleeping in the middle of Virginia and Oliver's bed as if she were little and sleepwalking again, her shruggy new adolescent self forgotten. They'd turned into a sudden team of two, each one circling like moons around the other.
2: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator.